So I was diagnosed as dyslexic when I was about seven or eight years old. All of my immediate family, my brother, my sister, we're all neurodivergent. But I was actually then diagnosed with being dyscalculia. I culiac. <laughs> Such a hard word to say, <laughs> what a horrible word it is to say. I would say it's essentially dyslexia for numbers. So this is from the summer from the World Championships in Budapest. I think I almost thrive in environments that other people would consider to be quite stressful. Our next guest has that rare ability to light up any room she enters. Adele Tracy's beaming smile shines through whether she's breaking national records or showcasing her talents as a makeup artist. Adele is a middle-distance track athlete with a formidable presence on the international stage. She's represented both Great Britain and now proudly Jamaica. I wanted to go beneath her amazing athletic achievements to find out more about her brain. How do you properly say dyscalculia? What is it? What does it mean for her? And how has she learned to successfully navigate the ups and downs of dyslexia and dyscalculia? What a mouthful. Here we go. Let's see how great minds think differently. Hi Adele, welcome to The Hidden 20%. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on. We sort of did the podcast before we did the podcast because it's been, yeah, it's just been lovely chatting to you beforehand. I've got loads of questions for you. Can we start with just like grounding us in your diagnosis journey? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I feel really fortunate that I was diagnosed as dyslexic at a really young age. Um, my mum was amazing at sort of getting me into a school, state school, that had a specialist teaching assessor there because I think she'd already picked up sort of things that were going on and sort of felt that I wasn't really... Um, feeling confident or engaged at school and just, yeah, a bit disheartened. We moved to the UK when I was about eight years old and previously I'd had quite a unstructured, um, I guess really practical and um, creative way of learning. Um, I grew up in the hills of Jamaica in Manchester and my mum sort of set up a school with loads of other parents from the community and eventually it was so good that we got government funding for it. But you know, we would measure sunflowers for maths and it was just very hands-on and creative. So going from that to sort of being in um, a school in the UK, which operates very differently, I think I was kind of making it quite clear that I was feeling really behind and feeling quite anxious in class, like sort of when the teacher points out that, you know, can somebody answer this question or whatever, that caused me a lot of anxiety, like throughout the day, just feeling like I didn't really know what was going on. Okay. Um, so I guess I was communicating that to her and we moved schools twice to kind of find me the right school that she could kind of get a diagnosis for me, I guess. So I was diagnosed as dyslexic when I was about seven or eight years old. And with that, I had that support from quite a young age. Do you remember what you thought and felt about that? I think I remember feeling actually relieved that there was something because... There's nothing worse than feeling like everyone else around you gets what's going on. And I'm sure it wasn't everyone. Sure. But I think when you're that young, you probably feel like that. Yeah. Um, and that I could understand that my brain was just working in a different way. It meant that I had a lot more 
yeah, just confidence to bring to other areas. I was like, okay, this might not be my strong point. I might feel challenged in this space, but, um, you know, I was doing other things outside of school, like sport and art, and that filled me with confidence to then bring back to that space so that I didn't feel so vulnerable. But I was actually then diagnosed with being dyscalculia. I went, culiac. What a horrible word it is to say. Yeah. Why have they made it so difficult? Yeah, I know. All the words, so yeah. hard to say. Can you say it so that people understand how to say it? correctly and also explain for our listeners and viewers what it is and I guess what it means for you. Yeah, so dyscalculia is, I would say it's essentially dyslexia for numbers. So for me that presents um, in maybe not able to read the actual number or they move around a lot for me. I really struggle to tell the time on a non-digital clock. It probably... Hands, you mean? Yes. Okay. Hands. Yeah. So it's not just... It's not just the the figure numbers in mm. that sense, but even translating like an analogue clock to words. Yeah, and 24-hour clocks, um, which is ironic because I'm an athlete, so I'm always working you on said distance, it. times, yeah, you clocks. Said yeah. They're, they're, yes. yeah, so it's a really challenging environment sometimes. Um, but it sometimes is just is processing as well. Okay. Just having that time to work out things. Um, I feel like with numbers that move, they move around a lot for me as well. So yeah, you mean visually? Visually, yeah. So they actually dance. Yeah, yeah. And I've noticed this a lot when I've been at the airport and I've been trying to like, I, I get on a lot of planes for for work for travel and things and work out my gate number and things like that. Okay. I, I think, yeah, things move around a lot for me and I have missed flights because of it. Train stations. <laughs> yeah, train stations. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that come into your everyday yeah. with dyscalculia that I notice more as an adult than maybe my dyslexia. Okay. Yeah. And when were you diagnosed with dyscalculia? When I was 14. Um, okay. And my mum actually... Um, we went we went to Helen Arkell to get a diagnosis specifically and got that done privately because um, I guess I was going into that period where I was about to take my GCSEs mm -hmm. and just couldn't really understand um, why I was finding that so challenging um, and needed the support in terms of the extra time and things for exams. So, um, yeah, so thankful that I had that um, in place. But it's just something that I notice comes up a lot more as an adult. And I don't know if that's because I had a later diagnosis than when I was um, with dyslexia. Yeah, that's, I mean, your mum sounds like a great support in that sense. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing. And I think all of my immediate family, my brother, my sister, her herself included, we, we're all neurodivergent. So I think that's um, an added layer. Like when you recognise that in one of your children, I suppose you, you know, the signs to be like, okay, yeah, I feel like they could have a bit more support in these areas. So yeah, I'm really lucky. Is it numbers or maths with dyscalculia? Like, think, how does that relationship work? I think it's both, to okay. be honest. Okay. Yeah, yeah, maths. Oh gosh, really a challenge for me at school massively. Um, I didn't get my um, sort of C, I guess, um, and so I had to do these adult numeracy multiple choice exams as okay. to get an equivalent to the C to get into university to do art. I wow. I know. That's... I took them three times these multiple choice tests and thank goodness I did get the, the C equivalent but 
that was really, really challenging. And still, like I say, everyday things, like even if I go to draw out some cash from the cash point, luckily we don't use cash as much anymore. Yes. But COVID. I've made a lot of mistakes there, like put too many zeros in and things because I just, yeah, it, my, my brain doesn't compute the numbers um, or the maths. And what level of support is there out there? I think at like school level, I got 50% extra time in exams that had anything numerical in them. Did that um, help? I definitely think time helps, yeah. Okay. It helps with the processing. Um, but I would say sometimes it is just like having that understanding from some someone else. So basically being unapologetically dyscalculic or dyslexic and being like hey I actually need more time to do this um this is really challenging for me and that's what I'm finding more and more as an adult is just putting your hands up and being like I need yeah you to just and does that feel okay to you to do that it does now yeah yeah I think there's definitely times where it doesn't it's in high stress environments and things but I'm really fortunate that I work in an area that I feel really confident and yeah, being myself in. Um, yes. I've got a great coach. He's very patient. If I'm sort of doing, I don't know, um, 600 reps on the track, he'll just say, right, you're doing a lap and a half six times. And that's just like gold because I can be like, okay, I don't even need to think about the distance right now. Um, but I do every time I'm given a rep, okay, um, a six, a four, some, maybe not 400 because I know that's one lap. But, yeah. you know, it's it's that just processing to be like, okay, how, what do I need to do here sort of thing. Because presumably, and I, you know, I was saying to you earlier that I listened to you doing a podcast while you were running, which I just, yeah, was kind of amazing. But I remember you, you know, you talked a lot about performance on, on, on that, obviously, and the diet, nutrition, all the training, Colin helping you get to peak just as, you know, you're ready to race. And it's quite a big scientific element to that, obviously. And thinking aloud now, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of numbers and calculations, actually, I guess, in what you eat. And like you're talking about reps and laps and <laughs> the irony of your profession being you know, incredibly liberating in one sense of, you know, outside, running, training, uh, from a mental health perspective, really good, I presume. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, yeah, real drill down into, I guess, facing into those reps and numbers. 100%. And I think as well with the way that a race day, for example, is set up, um, you know, you have a cool time that you need to be in the cool room. And then from there, it's like, what time do I need to warm up? What time do I need to eat to make sure that I'm ready to feel really great for the race? Yes. Um, so there's a lot of time management as well, which is another layer that comes into that. Um, I'm sure you know. And I think um, that's something that I've realised over the years that is a real challenge for me and that I might notice, yeah, just those last minute situations where it's like, right, your call time's changed or, and it's yeah. never a round number. It will never be like race <laughs> at seven o'clock. It'd be like 707 or 706 or something. And you have to sort of work it out really quickly yeah, um, and be ready for that. So yeah, it's a challenging environment at times, but I think I feel really fortunate that I get to do something that I love and that actually when I do strip all of that away and just really focus on the process and enjoying myself, I get the most out of that situation. Do you have any superstitions race day? Do you have any like, I always eat X or? 
How structured are you on that race day? There's definitely a schedule to it. And I think that's just for me to feel like I don't have to do too many decisions. And I suppose with what I was saying with the time management side of things, um, you know, I'll I'll have a schedule for each time of the day, like wake up, go do my shakeout, have breakfast at this time, okay. have a nap before the race this time. Do That's, you? Yeah, I will literally write for every time. But you have a nap before the race? Yeah, okay. yeah, because quite often when you race, it's late in the evening, yes. you usually don't sleep afterwards because you've had some caffeine yes. and the adrenaline and everything of just that race experience. Um, you usually don't end up sleeping or going to bed really late. So you're almost banking sleep so that you feel really good for the race, but also after that. So it's just scheduled those things in and making sure that I kind of know ahead of time what I'm doing because there's always going to be surprises on race day as well I feel okay. like there's always something that goes wrong which is why I'm not hugely superstitious and then when you're at the start line what are you thinking about I actually always just try and take like a beat to take it all in if there's like amazing atmosphere in the stadium I'm always like how lucky am I to kind of Okay. You know, take that all yeah. in and be here. Um, and then I also think that should see what happens because a lot of the time with the events that I do, um, being predominantly in the middle distances, you can't really plan. It's heavily tactical. Yes. Things change very quickly. Um, so you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and it's just like trusting your intuition and just, yeah, going to see what happens. So that's literally what I would think. Let's just see what happens. I... I... I personally love watching the 800 and the 1500 because of the tactical, like, it's not an all-out sprint. It's not too long where, personally, I get bored watching, you know, like 10,000 metre. Okay, guys, come on, just let me see the last few laps. (laughs) Whereas 800 and 1500 feel like you're straight into that tactical side of things. How much do you focus on understanding other people's form from a competition side other people's tactics like yeah where does that factor into your thinking yeah it's really strange I think when I'm performing at my best I am just really enjoying that process and I think it's almost like you're in a state of flow so you're not too aware of like what other people are doing around you okay but you sort of know where to expend your energy um so for me it's just very much feeling like if there's more there I'm you know going as soon as my intuition says go so I think it's just very much trusting yourself I feel like I run on a racetrack every single day yeah put my body through all that and I think if you feel like you've got more you just got to go for it it's very much just taking taking a risk you know and sometimes it doesn't pay off which is why people have you know bad days or whatever it's less for me about um my competition around me don't get me wrong that really helps being in that environment you know if you've got someone matching what you're doing mm. that always pushes you I think when I'm focused on myself that's very much when I I perform to my best and does it um guys is such a strange question but I've always wanted to ask an athlete it you know when like you've got a group of a group running ahead of you and there's the peloton aspect in in biking yeah is there a slip? Is that does it feel like you're in a slipstream when you're? I don't know. I just you see a group of people and you see someone there and then suddenly they launch. Does it slingshot you forward? Does it feel like that when you're racing? Sometimes it can appear like that from the outside. You're watching a race and it's like, oh, that person's like in the slipstream. They they're obviously chasing them down. 
But sometimes it is just that your body's like kickstarting. It's gone into that new state of physiology. You've gone into your anaerobic system or what have you. And you okay. are actually all of a sudden switching gear yeah switching gear almost yeah Yeah. um so it can be a number of things but when is your next race so i will probably um race indoors so we have indoor season outdoor season and the indoor season runs from about the end of january to the beginning of march um and there's world uh indoor championships in glasgow this year okay in march and then the summer um is the olympic games in paris and you lit the olympic torch is that the right word or the olympic cauldron or the olympic yeah the olympic cauldron is it called the olympic cauldron yeah with with an olympic torch yeah with an olympic torch (laughs) for the london olympics yeah how did that all happen i'm still so um thankful because i was basically selected by dame kelly holmes who as a kid she was heroic yeah my absolute idol um particularly because now I run the same events that she did. And yeah, just being a woman of, you know, mixed heritage. um, I think she has, you know, Jamaican heritage too. And I just felt as a kid, like it was really nice to see someone that, you know, you felt you had similarities to. And um, she basically nominated me to light the Olympic Ocean with six other young potential athletes, volunteers, anyone that those other Olympians had sort of recognised. Um, and yeah, to have that recognition as, I think I was 18, 19 at the time. Yeah, it just gave me such a boost. Um, yeah. But yeah, what an incredible experience. I feel so fortunate to be a small part of history in, in Olympic history as well. And hopefully this will be my first Olympic Games. So it feels like that's really, um, yeah, just a dream come true. So that's Paris. Yeah. You have to qualify for that. What do you have to? Yeah, so I've actually uh, this past season run both my qualifying times for the 1500 and the 800 meters. Um, so it's just a case of performing well at the Olympic trials. But yeah, it feels really great to have those times under my belt so that I can really make the most of my preparation, not having yes. to peak early to run those times. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty mega. Um, Thank you. I want to switch gear to the other side of you that is all around your creativity um and makeup and i know that we were we were talking before about glow up and yeah for anyone that hasn't seen or heard of glow up you know i've got i've got three girls makeup and creativity is a big thing in our household and watching that show is yeah it's pretty inspiring stuff what does that creative outlet mean for you yeah, um, I'm so glad that you watch Glow Up because yeah. it, it makes <laughs> explaining what I do as well so much easier and I love it as well. So I basically chose to do um, makeup at university because alongside, I guess, sport, I'd done sport, you know, from a really young age. But um, yeah, I've just always been encouraged to be creative and it's something that I really loved alongside school. I think when you're sort of struggling in one area you tend to lean into your strengths and I feel really glad that I had sort of those creative um, activities outside of school and just enjoyed doing those sort of things so always been arty and always thought I wanted to go down a career in the arts somehow so I basically did like your sort of hands-on makeup for film tv prosthetics um, wig making it's got such so many layers to it yeah. and that's why I love 
um, glow up because I yes. feel like it shows all those different yes. areas of um, makeup. Yes, not just putting mascara on and some blush. I know some of these terms now, guys, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not just, it's so much more as yeah. a, I don't know, as an art form. I think I just love that hands-on approach of essentially you can use any material and make something incredible and you're working with people as well so your canvas is a person and mm. um, so that interaction and that level of creativity is just something that I've always felt I needed and so yeah I think even though athletics and sport has um, always been there and something that I love on the flip side uh, makeup sort of yeah creatively stimulates me. So looking beyond sport uh, crystal ball time does makeup feature in that future for you yeah absolutely I think um, you know sport always has a limited period of time which is why I've taken you know um, every opportunity to sort of fully immerse myself in it while I can mm. I think it's a really healthy approach to sport because when I'm doing my makeup I'm fully in that world it's something that I've always sort of done throughout my running career and still do um, so yeah, I'll be probably re revisiting that as like more of a full-time um, thing in the future. But yeah, I think I could put my hand to a few things that are creative because of the way that um, I just feel like it, it. it's, I guess, that neurodiversity when you have that side of your brain, you just, it, it makes you kind of tick to do things that are creative and fun. So makeup is definitely one of those things. It sounds like you you had a really good understanding or opportunity to understand early on uh, that rather than everybody trying to make you good at what you weren't naturally good at, you were able to explore these outlets, you know, from a sport and a, I guess an art perspective that have really nourished you and you're really good at and you love and that's the win-win. I... I wonder what your reflections are on our education system here and for you know the next generation coming through what advice you you could give in terms of finding that environment that is really nourishing It's really hard because um yeah I think obviously the education system doesn't suit everyone particularly people that think differently um but I think if you can arm yourself with enough things that really make you feel full, um, that you can express yourself in the way that you want to um, outside of that. I think it is just finding what makes you tick, um, you know, no matter what, everyone sort of has to start in that education system, but um, there's different pathways for everyone. And so where do you think the athletics industry, where's that at from like a neurodivergence? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the reasons why I run are because... I am dyslexic and dyscalculic um, and, you know, just being able to channel um, my energy into something where I can come back feeling refreshed and I get a lot of clarity from that as well with sport and movement. So, um, yeah, just try and um, encourage others to, to move because I do think it really helps. But I think there's a reason why tra sport attracts a lot of neurodivergent people mm. because I guess it makes you a really resilient person as well having those sort of setbacks or not being able to necessarily keep up in the classroom and things like it makes you extremely resilient which is obviously a huge part of sport as well 
Tell me a bit about your work uh, with the British Dyslexia Association. Yeah, so really um, amazing to be an ambassador for the British Dyslexic Association. I feel like they've done such great work um, at basically helping families, adults access a lot of resources to um, be able to support themselves, but also, you know, in the workplace at school, but but also on a level where there's an understanding. Um, I think I saw a stat that said 80% of people leave school without a diagnosis. Um, and because I was one of the lucky ones that did have a diagnosis, I feel just so passionate about just raising awareness, changing, I guess, the narrative that exists around people who have neurodiversities. Because and what do you think that narrative is? I definitely think it is changing. I actually saw a really cool thing on LinkedIn where you can add that. Yeah, as a skill. Yeah, you yeah. can add it as a skill. But I do think that there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, it's so unique and different for every individual. And I think the education there for that is so important um, because if you can understand what helps somebody, you know, it can really help them to thrive. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that level of understanding for each individual is really important. What have you been doing as an ambassador um, with the British Dyslexia Association to start changing that narrative? Yeah, so I've been really fortunate to be a part of um, a few of their like helpline conversations. So they do these free webinars um, where, you know, if you're a parent or just somebody who wants to learn a bit more, come along and have a conversation with experts, but also they'll pull their ambassadors in and we'll just sort of talk about our experiences, but also the things that have really helped us. And then it's just having that conversation being like, hey, I'm dyslexic. This is what I do. Mm. Um and I think if people can have those conversations more, it also makes it easier for them to be like, hold their hands up and be like, I need help with this. Because I think yeah. that's the hardest thing sometimes, especially as an adult, is to ask for help. What do you think are the myths around dyslexia? I definitely, as a child, felt like I wasn't intelligent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think me, being made to feel like you're not clever is just so damaging in so many ways for your self-esteem and confidence. Um, but yeah, I think that is still a bit of a myth that surrounds a lot of neurodiversities. And I think it's having that understanding of, yeah, what, what that looks like for each person. So I think the more voices and the more conversations like we can continue to have will really help down, break down those myths. I've just sort of noticed that it becomes really binary of like we view this intellect and kind of intelligence from this, what's your IQ and how did you get on with your exams? Mm -hmm. And therefore, I guess the narrative seems to have been, well, if you're dyslexic, that means you're not getting the good grades and you're therefore not clever. Yeah. And that's it. End of game over. What are the things, what are the skills and the positives that people won't know or don't know around being dyslexic. We were talking before about that um, awareness thing. So I can find it really challenging in a room full of people if there's sort of music going on in the background or noise to zone in and, and my processing definitely gets sort of a bit um, 
worse when when that's going on but I also think my attention to detail and being able to zone in when I've got the right environment is I'll notice things that other people haven't noticed yeah just thinking of new ideas that creativity I guess that's why it's a benefit to have that on LinkedIn for certain job roles people see that as a benefit because you're bringing a new way of thinking to a space that you might have a lot of people thinking the same way yeah are you a good problem solver Definitely, yeah. And I think I almost thrive in environments that other people would consider to be quite stressful. What are you like in an emergency? I'd say pretty calm, which isn't necessarily the case for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. maybe maybe that is a part of it. Um, yeah. How how would you say you are? I'm super calm. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'd... really interesting. River, who's my four year old daughter, had to have her eyebrow rebuilt last year. She ran in some metal steps and it was really bad. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a real emergency. And I don't know, just calm, practical. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, what you're describing feels really accurate because I'll, I'll have quite a high stress response to things that are quite, would, other people would yeah. consider to be quite minimal. Yes. Like everyday tasks yeah. that I've like I've got to go to the post office. Yeah. Which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but it's like then if there was a real emergency, something quite serious happened, or, you know, running on a track in front of seventy thousand people. Yeah. Fine. So yeah. yeah, I think there there is something there. It makes me want to kind of understand, you know, firefighters and ambulance drivers and and people who are incredible and right at the forefront of their job is emergencies Mm -hmm. of like dealing with that stress, pressure, etc. Yeah. Because it's their job to be practical, problem solvers, calm. I think that's a really cool thing to be totally calm in those situations and yeah, totally stressed in other kind of really boring, <laughs> menial, uh, me stressing about, you know, what time it is or what time I need to be here yeah. or checking the call sheet three times, which I did this morning to remember what time I am meant to be here. Yeah. You know? No, 100%. I'm very much like that. I almost overcompensate, especially time. Time is a constant stress. Okay. Um, so that's really interesting that you feel like that as well. Cause so what are you doing for the rest of the day? How do you feel about the re- the time of the rest of your day after this? Uh, the rest of the day, fine, because okay. I've just got to train again. So, you know, that's kind of on my own terms. Um, nobody else is involved, so it's not yes. you know, impacting anybody else. Um, but yeah, definitely like being here. <laughs> getting being here on time making sure that I have everything like you know those little things um yeah I would say that they're those daily things that cause way more stress than like something that someone would consider to be quite stressful awareness of dyslexia is very high although there are lots of myths and and uh maybe some narrow views of what dyslexia is why has dyscalculia been left behind why why does that feel like it's it's not got the same awareness. I think there's just more uh, research that's been put into dyslexia because I definitely feel like there's been like a wave recently um, of a lot of people realising that they're ADHD. So that's like, I think there's more emphasis put on different neurodiversities at different times. And yes. dyslexia seems to have the most light that's been shone on it. But yeah, I, a dyscalculia, I 
feel like when I say it to people, a lot of people are, sorry, what is that? Because it's not a word that we use a lot, whereas dyslexia, you yeah. hear time and time again. And, and you are dyscalculic. Yeah. Um, God, why do they make it so difficult? Yeah, it's a real mouthful. Because um, <laughs> I, I think language is across neurodivergence and um, certainly what I'd love us to do is, you know, is dispelling some of the myths, sharing some of the truths, but also lang- language is really important because if people don't, they don't know how to say stuff, they don't know what to say, guess what? They won't say. And guess what? They won't talk. And guess what? We can't have conversations about it. And therefore it stays in the locker and the myths maintain um and there's no shift in perspective even with the difficult words like dyscalculia and dyscalculic i I think they're just it's really important to talk about um and say them and keep saying them so they maybe get a bit easier to say (laughs) yeah no 100 percent. i'm just so interested in how you manage like you know running a business starting a business with yeah, your your neurodiversities as well, though, because I I would imagine those little things, like that I'm saying on the daily, that cause me a lot of stress, are probably tied into all of that. Yeah, Seedlip exists because I'm autistic. I definitely, on reflection, really see that. This is very being very simplistic, but it was really well thought through and really detailed because I'm autistic. Okay. And it went really fast because I'm ADHD. Okay. Yeah, this constant push and pull of high interest, high focus, minutiae, detail, mm-hmm. um, Excel, spreadsheets, distillation, science, wanting to go and do things properly and in order and routine and schedule and okay. strategy. And then I have the other side, which is the ADHD, which is like, let's just do it. Let's get in Photoshop. Let's make stuff look nice. Let's, you know, and it's, oh, I'm exhausted saying it. It's like, it is, it's this is it constant co- yeah. push and pull. But yeah, I sort of thrive in chaos. Okay. Basically, which I create myself. I can completely relate to what you're saying. Just, um, I have a lot of close family members um that are ADHD um autism also kind of goes into that as well and I just think it makes perfect sense to me with what you're saying yeah it's uh, I you know and part of doing this is you know in some ways slightly selfish in the sense that I want to learn and I'm and I'm incredibly curious my brain is built you know, Charlie and Bella on our team will be bored of me saying this, but my brain is built to like for improvement and optimization and efficiency. And mm-hmm. so I want to get a better, better understanding and I want society to get a better and better understanding of the truth yeah. and the reality. And I guess the reality of us sitting here today is you're amazing at what you do, both with your professional sporting athletics career and also with your creative artistic side and you're doing that in spite of what society currently or a large part of society at the moment deems you know deficiencies right mm-hmm. in how your brain works 
And yeah, it's sort of a bit like, well, two fingers up to that because here's a real life example of someone who's doing really, really well and learning how to harness and use those aspects of how you think to improve your life and other people's lives. I'm going to actually go to our cabinet of neurospicy contributions or, yeah, just all the amazing contributions to society from people who think differently. Uh, have you brought something for us, Adele? I have brought something. I bought a race bib because I just feel like there are a lot of the reasons why I'm a professional athlete and why I race as well um, and why I thrive in that environment is because I'm neurodivergent. So this is from the summer, from the World Championships in Budapest. Um, and I raced, actually, I ended up racing five times in the space of 10 days. I did the 800 and the 1500, so there's a lot of rounds. It, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I felt so like grateful that I could be in that space and just love performing at the highest level. Yeah, I guess that's what it's about, mm. just finding your space that you can thrive in and really feel 100% yourself. <laughs> Adele, thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Hidden 20%. If you're still knocking about, then let me introduce you to the band. First up, main man on the mic, host Ben Branson our wonderful producer, Bella Neal, and the man who'll probably try and cut this bit, video editor, James Scriven. Not forgetting our wondrous theme tune by Jackson Greenberg. Lovers or haters, we want to know, so be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. For the lovers amongst you, you'll find us on TikTok and Instagram at Hidden20Podcast or over on hidden20.org where you can join our mailing list. <laughs>